What is up, guys? Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan. And this week, I am without Mr. Patrick Farrell. I have replaced him with a smaller ginger companion, Mr. David Nolan. Some of you will know Dave. If you've been listening for a while, he has been on the podcast before. Um, And he's currently trying to solve the whole COVID-19 crisis himself, testing everybody, so I hear. So Dave, what's the story? How are you? Tell the listeners who you are and how you're solving the COVID-19 crisis. I'm good. I'm good. As you say, you are right. Single-handedly solving it. I'm swabbing everyone myself, transporting the swabs, doing everything. Um, I just got frustrated with the incompetence of humankind, so I said I'd <laughs> deal it with myself. No, I, I am good, sir. As you said, David Nolan. Um, have been on before discussing some stuff around GAA, uh, strength and conditioning, uh, own and run Synapse Performance, online coaching, kind of sports science consultancy company. Um, work for Rugby Academy Ireland, their head of performance. Work for Applift, that's a strength and conditioning software based out in UAE, so I'm their R&D officer. Currently doing contract, contract research in DCU, where I look at the interaction between nutrition and exercise interventions in older adults to preserve muscle mass and strength. My PhD then that I'm doing at DCU under Brendan Egan, um, we look at heterogeneity of response to exercise intervention. So basically, why, if we give the same stimulus to two different people, why do we see different responses? What might be the drivers of that? And can we influence that? And then I also research rapid weight loss techniques for strength sports. So looking at weight cutting and how people make weight for sports. So how they can do that more safely and effectively um, to protect against detriments in performance. And obviously all the research at the moment with the current pandemic is on hold. So I have put myself forward and I'm currently, as you said, working in one of the COVID-19 testing labs. So I'll just do my part there to help out with the whole testing procedure. So that's pretty much me wrapped up in a nutshell. Legit. And you mentioned some of those, uh, some of the, the research that you have been involved in is related to weight cutting. Um, and in particular, what we want to discuss today is weight cutting for strength sports. So obviously like cutting weight in general is something that's common among many different types of sports, whether it be combat or strength, or even if you're a jockey, you know, so there's lots of things people wouldn't even think about. So there's a lot of areas where weight cutting does come into play. And in particular, we're talking about weight cutting somewhat different to your kind of fat loss interventions. So I think on this podcast, we've had many discussions related to the basics of how to lose weight, how to lose body fat, how to do so, maintain your muscle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, so now we want to transition more so into that discussion related to um, the shorter term weight cuts, like how people make weight, why they want to make weight. So, to start off, Dave, what I was wondering is, like, what what sort of things do we see? Like, why is weight cutting important um, for strength sports? Why do people engage in this? Um, and also, you know, how, how common are these practices? Like, do, is it a case that 50% of people just hover at the same weight all the time? Um, or is it the case that some people just engage, or the other 50% are engaging in rapid weight loss or, or what's the story? Like what's the, what's the general landscape for people listening? Yeah. So first of all, I suppose, why do people weight cut? It's a good question. So as long as there've been weight class sports, so we know that, as you said, a lot of the combat sports, um, are all weight class strength sports, which is powerlifting, weightlifting, strongman. You have to get into a certain weight. Your first job is to hit a certain weight, and then you're allowed to compete once you do that. The other common sports being um, horse racing, so jockeys, they're actually quite unique because unlike most sports where you weigh in, hit the weight, and then you compete at whatever weight you want, 
jockeys actually have to weigh in afterwards, after the race as well. So they have to maintain that rapid weight loss. And then the other main sport that people don't think about is rowing. There's a lot of weight cutting in rowing because that's split into light and heavyweight. So why people do it is a good question. So it's, it's always kind of been done, especially in boxing. It's, it's a huge cultural component. So the general idea is that you, you habitually weigh above your whatever your target weight class. So let's say for a 93 kilogram powerlifter. So on the day of the meet, two hours for the meet, they have to weigh 93 kilos or under to compete in the under 93 kilo class. So a lot of powerlifters may hover around 96, 97 kilos habitually, you know, allows them to eat more food, take in more energy. They feel that they can train better. They feel that they're stronger, recovering better, whatever it may be. Then in generally the last seven days before the meet, they'll engage in practices manipulate their body weight get in under that 93 make weight and then hopefully in the hour or two after weighing eat their way back up and rehydrate their way back up to 96 97 the idea being if you are someone who normally weighs 97 you cut down to 93 but then you hit 97 back on the platform that you're going to have a performance advantage over someone who say may habitually weigh 92.8 kilos and simply maintains their body weight into the meat so the idea then you'd have one athlete at 92.8, whatever, and the other athlete has regained back up to 97. That be just be by being a heavier mass on the platform, potentially with a higher degree of muscle mass, that you are able to produce more force, lift more weight, be more competitive. In combat sports, the idea if you like the same, cut a lot of weight, it tends to be more significant weight loss in combat sports. You might have guys cutting anywhere from five up to even 10 kilos for a fight, regain that five, 10 kilos, and then go into the fight. Now, if you're in a sport where the sole purpose is to inflict more damage upon your opponents than you sustain, if you're throwing every punch or you're grappling and you have a five or 10 kilo weight advantage, theoretically, you can put more force, more weight behind any strike. You can leverage your weight more. If anyone has grappled at all, you know that, you kind of get the, sometimes you might not have the most highly skilled grappler. It's usually, say, a tall, I won't say fat, a tall, say heavier, gen, <laughs> let's say fat. You, anyone that's done jiu-jitsu for a while, you'll usually have that, you know, tall, fat guy, who not that skilled, but once he gets on top, once he gets any mount position, goes dead weight, just drops dead weight on you. You're trying to bridge, you're trying to do whatever you can, and after a minute or two of trying to move this massive human just off you, you fatigue while they literally lie there, go dead weight, conserve energy, you fatigue. And then, you know, you get hit with a simple little arm bar or whatever it is, because you're just that bollocks that you can't keep going. So that'd be the idea there, that if you are able to come into most sporting situations heavier than your opponent, you're going to have a competitive edge. So that's why as long as weight class sportsmen there, people have been trying to cut weight to get into them. Now, that's from a theoretical perspective why people do it. The other big thing about the why is just cultural norms. It's always been part of the sport. Um, it's In combat sports especially, it's, it's almost a badge of honor. The harder, there is this conception along, among a lot of fighters that the harder the weight cut is, the more of an advantage is going to confer to you. So you'll hear a lot of old school coaches saying when in the fight game, the weight cut should be the hardest part. And, you know, if a weight cut's too easy, even athletes I've worked with in, in boxing have made weight much easier when I've come in and kind of put in more sensible approaches. 
But the first thing the coach or the fighters say then, oh, that was very easy compared to my last times. Maybe I could go to the lower weight class next time. So it's always, how can I push it more, push it yeah. more, rather than, well, we made weight easy. Why do we need to put more stress on ourselves? So that's more so in the combat sports. We see people just, it's, it's hand down culturally. In strength sports, there's not as much of a culture of it. But as you said, there is high prevalence. And the research we did was the first to ever look at um, prevalence and the methods used in um, competitive powerlifters. And we saw, so we had um, over 300 respondents to our, our survey, but we subcategorized them. And the main category or cohort we looked at was your typical IPF lifter. So, you know, you're two hour away in drug tested raw lifter. And we had 200 people in that category. Now, their competitive status ranged from, you know, novice, very novice lifters up to very advanced lifters. So we had quite a, a great, varied demographic. And um, we had a nice gender split, 60-40 gender split. So for sports science research, it's quite a good gender split. We saw 90% prevalence across um, the thing. So we saw people who are novice lifters, not even competitive they're engaging in it. So we saw huge engagement. And we see that in combat sports as well, across all sports, really, where weight cutting is a thing. It's not something that's reserved for the elite end of the sport. Anyone who's in the sport tends to engage in it. It tends to be highly prevalent. And what's interesting then as well in terms of methods used, and we can go on to that, um, when we looked at who were the biggest influencers, who influenced the methods used and whether someone weight cuts or not, we see that people rate their coaches and fellow athletes and online resources as the biggest influences. That's what dictates if they cut and how they cut, which is, as you said, their praxis handed down from generation to generation, coach to coach, online resources. Anyone's ever Google anything got to do with fitness and health online, that's a shark bit. You don't know what you're going to get there in terms of quality control. Um, where nutritionists, registered dietitians, and doctors like who you're going to be yourself, Gary, medical doctors, not, you know, kind of fake doctors like I'm aspiring to be, <laughs> um, not PhD guys, they were rated as the least influential. So, you know what I mean? That, that should start to trigger off some alarm bells for people that everyone seems to be doing it, but the people that are dictating how to do it aren't probably suitably qualified to make those um, recommendations at all. Absolutely. And, and just, just something that came to mind there, actually, and you might, I don't know if it's something that you've looked into much, but you mentioned um, the fact that the cohort you were interested in was, you know, IPF drug tested lifters. And one of the things that, that has happened a number of times, you know, in bodybuilding is people using um, diuretic type drugs and basically putting themselves at a very high risk of, of renal failure. And there's been cases where bodybuilders have died on stage or shortly after because of the use of such drugs. So, is that something that's prevalent in powerlifting and strength sports as well? The use of diuretic drugs or other drugs to, to support the, the weight cutting practices outside of the IPF, obviously. Yeah. So obviously the IPF is highly regulated in terms of um, its, its drug testing policies or at least would have a higher degree of drug testing than most organizations. Mm -hmm. We did have a small cohort reply to the uh, survey that are drug using athletes that do, don't engage in um but don't compete in tested federations. And like that, the, the caveat being to there is most of those guys engage in 24-hour weigh-ins. Mm. Um, so that's different to the traditional IPF. So those guys, as you expect, with a longer recovery period, do see more significant um, weight losses. They tend to cut more weight. Yes, they use diuretics. And um, as you said, you do see a lot of people going into um, 
renal failure, we tend to see a lot of the, the side effects of a lot of these diuretic drugs is the deplete potassium levels within um, the, the body. And that, as you said, that can lead then to uh, renal failure down the line and even death ultimately. So it's not something I've looked into hugely, but it is something I've had a conversation with a colleague of mine. So I have a colleague, um, Broderick Chavez, who, if anyone doesn't know him, he is the drugs guy, essentially. What is yeah, full-time. He's actually on the podcast about oh, yeah, months ago, I think. Yeah. yeah, so Broderick, his full-time job is designing steroid cycles for athletes. Um, now, I, I really like Broderick. He's, um, he's a very colorful, interesting character, and I had an yeah. enjoyable weekend here with him in, in Dublin when we had him over. So put, a, put aside your moralistic and all those kind of values, but what he has is a wealth of experience working with people who use steroids for this and use drugs, performance-enhancing drugs for this purpose. So when he, he actually found what we do in terms of a lot of the water load and stuff or some of the stuff we do is, is laughable. He's like, but you can do that so easily with drugs. I was like, <laughs> yeah, but it's a drug-free sport. He's like, yeah, but like you're, you're doing all this where, and there's so much guesswork. He's like, you could just know your exact dosage. You know what you're going to get. Drugs are so much easier. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So what he does now, he will use uh, diuretic drugs with his guys. And he said you can use them to um, great effect. He says the biggest issue with the diuretics is um, the potassium. So what he does with any of his guys, he will front load potassium for about 10 days going in. So he will bring the potassium levels in the body to... Obviously, if you go too high with potassium, that can have obviously cardiac issues then and everything like that. But he will elevate potassium levels within the body um, through supplementation and whatever other means that when you actually come to using diuretic, that you have a reserve that you can deplete potassium down without going to dangerous levels. So you're just depleting them down to what would be normal physiological levels. And so that's what he does. And the other thing he said is that people tend to use the diuretic hormones too early. The guys will hit them two, three days out where he'll just implement them 16 to 20 hours out from way. And he's like, guys bring themselves to two dehydrated states too early and then have to try maintain this dehydrated state where, and this applies to non-drug or to drug tested as well. Mm -hmm. The rapid weight loss, you want it as a flash in the pan, you know, you want to get down to that weight, hit that weight and bounce back out of it. You don't want to be holding down too long in that depleted state. You want to just make weight and get straight back over. So they are the big implications. But again, as I said, it's not an area I'm overly versed in. It's a lot just anecdote what I've heard from experts rather than reading the, the literature myself. But yeah, I think the biggest uh, implications you're going to have there are potassium levels and potentially, uh, as you said, renal failure and death from misuse. So as I said, I don't judge people. I'm very laissez-faire when it comes to the use of um, drugs. Just once you're not in a drug-tested sport and probably cheating other people, by all means, go ahead and use whatever you want. But if that is something you're considering, hire a professional. Broderick is one of the main professionals in the game. He's not expensive. I've, I've given out to him for undercharging, if anything. for I, He sold me his price list. So if that's a road you're going to go down, seek out the help of actually someone who knows what they're talking about. 100%. And yeah, I think that you brought up a good point there as well that like the risks associated with with diuresis is not just related to drugs either as in there are risks that come with the weight cutting process in and of itself and also like the opposite direction like people have died from drinking too much water. You know, so I mean, some things that we think that are that are quite benign um, can actually be be quite harmful. One of my friends in my class actually, he's a an MMA fighter himself and he was saying that um on the way back from a fight abroad, one of the 
one of his fellow fighters reported, um, you know, having this really bad back pain and, um, you know, the back pain was just ongoing and ongoing and it, he started, he started to experience symptoms of like nausea and feeling sick and everything. And basically he was going into renal failure and that was without any drugs. It was very simply just a case of yeah. a regular weight cut. Um, so that kind of brings me on, I guess, to the, que- the, the next question, which would be right. People are doing, or right, we know, we know that these things are common. They're common among de- different sports, but what, what percentage of uh, weight loss are we typically seeing, seeing from people? And for people who may not be aware, um, how are people losing this much weight this fast? Because obviously it can't be body fat. So, so where are we taking this additional mass from? Yeah, that's good. So I think if we, if we pull it back, and as you said, we're, we're not talking about fat loss. So we have, you've podcast discussed this fat loss. So uh, like the, the term rapid weight loss, it's because we hear weight loss in there. We're just pre-programmed to think in terms of body composition. So I prefer rapid weight manipulation. That's essentially what it is. We're manipulating um, our body mass. So you have obviously your long-term dieting kind of things. And a lot of athletes will engage in this coming up to competition. So that's your stereotypical, you know, sustained calorie deficit. We're looking for body composition changes. So any of the changes we see in body mass or body weight is coming from, you know, um, an increase or decrease of either muscle tissue or adipose fat tissue. That's the two main areas that we're going to see causing influences. When we get into this rapid weight loss in terms of making weight for a sport, that's a very acute or short-term manipulation is what we're doing. So we're not concerned with changing body composition. Rather, we want to just, in the short term, manipulate body mass, literally influence the number on the scale um, for a short term. So the three main pillars of what you're going to manipulate there are body water. So through different um, fluid ingestion, fluid restriction, water load, and we can talk about what these things mean down the line. Between that and active and passive dehydration methods, we're going to manipulate the amount of water we hold in the body. Second pillar is your carbohydrate manipulation. So we know that we store a lot of carbohydrate in our liver and muscles as glycogen. Well, we can manipulate that, which can have a huge influence on our body mass. And then the third pillar that we generally target is our GI tract contents or good content. So we have a lot of the semi and fully digested food sitting around in our um, intestines and colon and bowels and what it may be so we can manipulate that then as well so they're the three things we tend to manipulate and we can talk about how we do that um, a little bit down the line but in terms of how much body mass we generally see people cutting that will be influenced by the sport type itself so what the sport is um, even within the sport type within strength sports the type of strength sports it is may, may uh, change how we go about things so powerlifting versus strongman can be very different. And then the recovery period is probably the biggest influencer. So we know in the IPF, you have a two-hour weigh-in. So you weigh in, and within two hours, you're going to complete your first attempt. Oftentimes, it can be less than that two hours in, in practical terms. And especially when you consider you're probably warming up with a 45 minutes out from your first squat, you don't have a lot of time for a recovery phase. Where you have fighters, you know, MMA boxers, it's 24 hours. If you're a championship um, on the top of the fight card it can be extended up to 30 36 hours so if you cut weight you have a lot of um, time to regain there so that's why we see that combat sports tend to cut much more weight than strength sports so within the typical ipf lifter so two hour weigh-in what we generally see and recommend and what we actually saw in practice with our survey is people cut an average around three percent body mass um, in that final seven days so 
while the weight cutting process is seven days, we define it as that last seven days. It's actually generally the last 24 hours is where we actually see that. So what I like to describe it is the weight cutting process itself is seven days long, but that first six days just is kind of potentiates the weight loss. So everything you do there, you won't actually see the fruition of your work in that first five to six days, which can be a rabbit hole. We can go down in terms of psychologically keeping yourself and prepared during the weight cutting phase and your athlete. But it just potentiates that acute drop in that last 24 hours. We make weight, then we look, go into our regain phase. And we want to regain that as much weight as possible back up to hopefully what we were at the start of the seven days. So that's the way it is. So we generally see strength sports cutting around 3%. will be higher if it's a longer weigh-in. Combat sports, we generally see the literature suggests somewhere between 8 to 10% is the average people are cutting. In practice, I've heard we all have anecdotes where we've heard people cutting 15, even 20% of body mass in a week to make weight for a fight. But generally, our recommendations is you can probably get away with 2 to 3% um, acute weight cut if done properly for a strength sport with a two-hour weigh-in with little to no detriment performance. For a 24 to 36-hour weigh-in with combat sports, 8% seems to be that sweet spot. Once we start pushing beyond 8%, we tend to see the performance decrements um, come in so they're the different phases and I think just to, to wrap up so people conceptualize what we're talking about in terms of our weight cutting process I heard Danny Lennon describe it very well in the five stage process if I can paraphrase correctly so you have your stage one is your gradual dieting you're, you're um, reducing body mass getting your body composition to where it needs to be and then you find yourself a week out then you're in that um, week two phase or phase two where you're doing all your water load and your gut manipulation, you're doing all these things in the five, six days leading up to 24 hours out. Phase three is at 24 hours out, where we actually start now to see that acute drop. We make weight. Phase four is your regain, get ready for competition, regain, rehydrate, refuel. And then the phase five, which people don't often talk about, is your post-competition nutrition. And we see a lot of fighters who get the fight and then they go on a two-month binge, eat everything they can, and then they're in a stage where, okay, the dieting phase has to be extended for a prolonged period before their next fight, where the good athletes tend to keep their body composition in check all year round and get back on the wagon and get the nutritional habits back in check very quickly. Good stuff. And that, that one thing, one thing that, that, that came to mind while you were talking, that, and that, that's interesting to think about, is the fact that right, you said that the combat sport athletes, because of the nature of the weigh-in time, they generally tend to lose a larger proportion um, of their body mass than, than strength athletes do. And one of the things that came to mind for me is the fact that when, we're talk- when we were talking about um, the advantages that one gains by cutting down to a weight class at the beginning, um, we're kind of talking about this inter-individual um, advantage so that I can get more of an advantage over my opponent if I happen to have been heavier previously. So, you know, um, whereas... When we're, t- when we're talking about um, strength athletes, we're really talking about pretty much, like obviously it's, it's not solely, but it's, it's mostly one component of fitness that you're actually looking to express, and that is strength. So it's one single component of fitness. And very often, like if you're a, for most powerlifters at least, there probably is a case of it being 
an intra-individual performance consideration more than anything else. Like, I want to beat my previous PBs, and that's mostly what I'm concerned with. Um, so that's quite different to combat sports where, yes, there's a, there's a case of you want to be at your best, but your main goal is actually, I need to be able to kick the shit out of my opponent. Mm. <laughs> like, that's, that's yeah. pretty much the sole outcome that you're looking for. So, so that's interesting to think about because, um, like, what, what sort of difference, like, when we, when we narrow it down to strength, do we see significant differences in someone's strength? I'm not sure if there's research on this between, let's say, um, prior to a weight cut and after a weight cut. And if so, or if not, what's the role of the weight regain process in that for a strength athlete in particular? Does that make sense? That question. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, again, there's not a whole lot of literature. This is yeah. why our research group has essentially been burted out. We don't know the effect of the weight cut. Like, Generally, you see a lot of people talk with authority on weight cutting, but the quality of a lot of the empirical evidence that's there is quite poor. We don't have actually that many RCTs, intervention-based studies. A lot of the literature in this area is just surveys and self-report surveys and retrospective. And So we don't have many case studies. We don't have many RCTs looking at this kind of stuff. So a lot of what we have to draw is inferences from other areas of research. So... In terms of if you the combat stuff, yeah, there's stuff been done there. We know that people after a weight cut, and even if they've regained, we tend to see reduced capacity for repeated sprint efforts. So repeated high intensity sprint efforts tends to be the biggest thing that takes a hit. Now, if you are in anyone that's ever done MMA or boxing, that's the definition of the sport. You go all out for a couple of seconds, take a break and go all out. So we see that those who've cut weight tend not to be able to sustain the repeated sprint efforts. So that is one thing. Why that happens, we're not entirely sure. We've Oliver Barley's work tried to identify it, uh, looking at neuromuscular components, and it doesn't seem to be inhibition of the neuromuscular system. So we're not entirely sure of why we see a performance decrement. Now, I have some, I won't call them hot takes, but some inferences on why that may be, and we can talk about that. But in terms of the strength stuff, so what we do know is we see that dehydration tends to lead to a decrease in maximal strength. So we see that generally when we go above 2% dehydration in terms of body mass reduction, we see that maximal strength starts to take a hit. Why that may be at the fundamental level of the muscle, there's a few theories, but generally we, we don't know. And we can talk about why that may be in a, in a few minutes. But So we tend to see people... Where we see the most strength decrease when you look at the literature is high velocity movement. So power tends to be the first thing that takes a hit from any of this kind of dehydration and body mass reduction stuff. But powerlifting by itself, a 1RM at attempt, that's not a power-based movement. That's a slow, grindy contraction velocity. So, you know, we grind it out. Maximal strength, and even across most things, it's a very resilient trait. Maximal muscular force is, is very resilient to a lot of things, even detraining. You know, it's, it's one of the things that holds very well. Um, so we tend to see that, I think personally, if you're in that 2 to 3% and you regain, your maximal strength from a physiological perspective should not take a hit. Now, what we tend to see is someone's body mass decreases the decreased glycogen the actual frame and size of a human being will decrease with that so if you reduce body mass reduce glycogen so this idea concept of bodybuilding physique they look flat you know what i mean their muscles weren't full so if your glycogen levels deplete your muscles the volume that they take up actually decreases slightly 
So if you go into a meet now, you've trained for three, four months where you're eating well, fully fueled for every training session. Now all of a sudden you go out into the platform, you put on your belt. Your belt's a bit looser than it ever has been because your body mass, your good contents is depleted. So you're actually you're not as quote, quote, bloated as you usually are. So now all of a sudden you go onto the platform, you start, you take your big debt, you unrack the bar, you take your big belly bread in, you push into that belt. Now all of a sudden, for the first time in months, the belt doesn't push back. You don't get the same proprioceptive feedback from that belt that you had gotten. And as a lifter, if you're not used to this, especially, you'll have that, you're all hyped up and now all of a sudden like, oh shit, my belt doesn't do what it usually does. Your psychology, you're after having a psychological break there. Your fucking mindset is gone. So you're not, okay, now you shrug it off. Okay, it doesn't matter. Now you go down, same thing. Your quad volume isn't the same, your glute volume. So all of a sudden you have minute changes in your levers. And especially anyone who, who's a proficient squatter, no one thinks when they're going down squatting, oh, I'm deep enough there now, I'll come back up. You have an, it's autonomic. You have just this cue, you feel depth and you spring back up there without even thinking about it. Now, all of a sudden, how you perceive depth is slightly off. And this is why you'll see people get called for depth on a first attempt and can't understand why. It's because the proprioceptive feedback is off, feedback from the belt is off. So that's one issue that could potentially be causing some of the potential um, performance decrements. Now, what I think explains a lot of it, and again, would explain why maybe repeated sprint efforts isn't sustained very well when neuromuscular system is fine. What we all know, one of the classic consequences of dehydration is an increased rate of perceived exertion for any given task. We see that. And we also know that um, dehydration can also um, transiently reduce your VO2 max then as well. So for any given intensity, you're at a higher relative intensity to VO2 max, but we don't need to go into that kind of thing. But at a baseline level, if you are dehydrated, your RP for any given task goes up. So now a lift that was an RP9 is a 9.5 or whatever it may be. Um, again, they're just arbitrary figures. In a sport like powerlifting, where you're literally going out to hit an RP10, and oftentimes the, the difference between a winner and a loser in that or someone who hits that PR or doesn't. And I think powerlifters, as they get better, obviously they get stronger. And there's some research I want to carry out around this. Your ability to just grind out a lift becomes better. Your ability to maintain technique, maintain composure when that lift gets heavy just um, improves you go along. So I think that a lot of performance decrements comes as someone is slightly dehydrated, now a weight that usually felt relatively light to them, feels heavy, the rate of perceived exertion goes up, and essentially the bitch out of the grind a bit sooner than they would have if they were in you know, a euhydrated state. And again, I'd like to see some research around that where as a sidetrack, what I want to do, there's this concept called the minimal velocity threshold. So that's essentially the, the concentric velocity at which you fail a lift. So generally, you know, for advanced lifters, it falls somewhere between 0.1 and 0.2 meters per second in that concentric velocity, where I think if you track lifters across your career or you get lifters a different um, competitive status, I think you'll see a nice linear, negative linear relationship that as your experience goes up, your ability to sustain a lower minimal velocity threshold increases then as well. So you're able to keep that bar moving at slower speeds, essentially you become better at grinding it out. So yeah, I, I'm gone on a bit of a paramble there, but <laughs> the main 
issues we see is we don't know why it affects strength, but if you push way too much, we do see it having a negative effect. Um, so a lot of it's done on survey data, and my colleague Kedrick Kwan has looked at the relationship between weight cut and medal winners at IPF Worlds and found the same kind of relationship. Around that 2 to 3% is fine. Push beyond that, performance decrements come in. Why that happens, we don't know. It doesn't seem to be a neuromuscular thing. I would bank on it's more of a psychological thing and a rate of perceived exertion kind of thing down to acute dehydration. But again, we need to trash that out in the literature. Good stuff. And, and we were talking, you were saying there about, you know, IPF world. So obviously we're talking about people who are at a very high level there and we're talking about these weight cutting practices. And I think one of the mistakes, or not necessarily a mistake, uh, that someone could make is that if they're listening to this and they're like, all right, I'm doing my first powerlifting meet, I'm trying to plan my weight cut. Like, what would your advice be to people who are just doing maybe their, their first or second kind of local meet? They're just trying to get some experience. Like, is this something they should be concerned about or should they just be maybe thinking about, all right, let me get my nine lifts on the board. Let's see where my personal bests are, etc. Yeah, no, I, I think weight cutting is something that we see everyone seems to engage in, but most people do it because everyone else does it. If it's your first meet, there are very few situations in which I could see... Um, the merit for a weight cut the only situation is if it's not really your first meet in terms of you're one of these guys that's been powerlifting training for five six yeah. years or something like that oh i'm doing my first meet it's like yeah but you're you're a seasoned lifter it's not like you took up barbell sports six months ago so if it's someone like that that will go in and potentially win their first meet or something like that you're not a true beginner if that's the case and you know by getting into a weight class by cutting down a couple of kilos you're able either to you know, hit a podium position or hit a qualification standard. By all means, go ahead. Then you have a good rationale for why you're going in there. It's giving you a competitive edge. If you're a seasoned enough lifter and you're cutting weight to become fifth or sixth in the category, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, if you are a beginner, like you should be going into that first meet. Even You probably shouldn't even be hitting RPE 10s on the lift. You should be going in, just go nine for nine, get, competi- get competition experience under the belt, build confidence, build momentum, and then go out you know, push the boat a bit in your second meet. If you're only in powerlifting a few months and it's your first meet. Um, and then the, the other thing is, like newbie gains is something we all wish we could go back to. You know, Barbell sports is, is it's, it's a slippery mistress in terms of, there is a dichotomy that the longer you're in the game, the more work you have to do for less return on investment. That's just part of it. And that, I think, is why you have to be more process-orientated than outcome-orientated in the barbell world. Um, so at the start, you know, you're, going, you're getting stronger week to week. You're really progressing at a huge rate. Do you want to hamper that progression by putting yourself into severe calorie deficit, dehydrating yourself, setting yourself up, for a poor performance where for those first few years, just lift and eat. Now, again, don't put your body composition in a poor place while keeping body composition in a good place, but you want to spend the majority of your time at calorie maintenance or at slight calorie surplus and facilitate good progressive training for those first few years. And then when you actually get strong, because a lot of young guys, you know, they're 17, 18 to think they're strong. You know, you're competitive in a small little pool of powerlifters who are young, but then you get yourself into the open championships. You go to European and worlds, and then you realize you're not that strong at all. Um, and those first few years where you should have been making huge strength gains, you sacrifice for your own ego to come third in a regional meet in Leinster. Who gives a shit? You know what I mean? You go to, really, like, and, you know what I mean? It's, it's, 
people remember those who won world championships, who won medal. Like, I placed on the podium in November there in a uh, regional meet down in City Gym. No one's going to remember that shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? No one's going to, uh, 20 years times like, oh yeah, Dave, he came third. Or no, I came second. He came second in November 2019 meeting City Gym. No one talks about that. You know what I mean? It's like, but my friend Arthur is like, oh, Arthur Lynch. Yeah, he top, ranked top 10 in the world a few times. That's what people talk about. So don't, I think a lot of people need to look at the long game then as well. What I see happening is people fall into a, a trap, a weight cut cycle kind of trap where you have guys that are six foot and they keep cutting to stay in the 83s or whatever it may be. He's like, man, you, you're a 105. You know, you're built for a 105. That's where you're going to be most competitive. So I think a lot of people have to look at where, where is the weight class you want to end up in to be highly competitive. <laughs> So if you're a young guy, you know, you have, you have a lot of muscle still to build and you're in the 83s um, or say you're in that gray area, 87, 88 kg, but you're six foot one or two. If you fill out in a couple of years, you should be a 105. That's where you're going to be competitive as a senior. Does it make sense to, okay, you can cut in the 83s, but okay, so you cut, it's only four kilos or whatever it may be. Let's cut this time. Okay, we made the weight cut. We hit 83. Now we're still hovering at 86. Oh, there's another meet in three months' time. No, I think I'll maintain body weight so I can cut back into that just for that. Where it should be, go through the awkward phase where you're hanging between the 83s and 93s. You know, weigh in at 90 kilos um, without cutting. Yeah, you're not going to be competitive for a while. But what you're doing, you're getting really good competition experience all under your belt. You're fully fueled for every meet. So every meet, you're getting the best performance that are possible for you. You're building momentum, you're building experience, and then you're building, you're facilitating hypertrophy as well. You're doing all this hard training. Give yourself the best chance of actually building muscle tissue when you're early in your career and most responsive to hypertrophy stimulus. And then over four, five, six years, fill yourself out. So then when you come to being 103, 104 kilos, you are there at a good body composition, good degree of muscle mass, and you have a wealth of competition experience, of positive competition experience. Every competition you've went into, you've went in with good momentum. You've hit the oars. Rather than being a hit and miss lifter, that one weight cut was good, you didn't have competition detriment. Another weight cut was poor, you um, had performance segments, and you just have this kind of wave momentum coming in. Um, the only <laughs> thing I would say for people like that, if for one or two competitions that aren't that important, trial the weight cutting yeah. um and this can be done far away from competition it doesn't even it can be done from a mock meet in the off season um just because one thing i'm always interested in is inter-individual um differences and responses so do a water loading phase see how you respond to it we have hyper responders and we have non-responders as with everything um so just tr um, practice some of the common practices just to get a gauge of how you respond respond to them so then when it comes to a weight cutting for an actual important competitive meet, be it Euros or Worlds or whatever it may be, that you've worked for seven or eight years, that you have um, at least a ballpark estimate of how your body responds to these practices if you need to do them then at that stage. Yeah, I think that's super solid advice. And like to kind of reiterate what you, what you said, I think it's important for, for people to think about like what they actually like value as well, because it's easy to say to yourself, like, right, I'm going to stay in, the, in and around the, the window of 80 to 85 kilos and just try to maximize my per, per body weight strength, you know, so I want to have a triple body weight squat and potentially sacrifice 
like absolute strength versus just for the sake of relative strength. So are you the type of person that do you value being heavier, but still getting a 250 kilo squat or staying lighter and never really even reaching 200? And that's something that is individual. And I think whether or not you're interested in in powerlifting, that's something that's, that's worth thinking about. Because for some people, they might be, you know, saying to themselves, look, I play a bit of GA, I'm happy out at my body weight, I want to be as strong as I can, but only at this body weight. And I think that's something that, that that's worth considering. Are you interested in strength for strength's sake? And that's that's your only thing? Or is it just strength strength that is relative? Because like that is something that that you're entitled to to decide on, you know? Yeah, that's that's usually and then like when you get to the longevity side of things, like in the health yeah. side of things, like being 100 kilos, I often talk about being 100 kilos, 110 kilos, jacked and strong as hell, still going to probably die younger just by, yeah, you're strong and you have a good body composition. But if you were 80 kilos with the same body composition and same relative strength, the guy who's 80 kilos is going to probably live longer than you. Just we know that, that body mass and um, life expense and all cause mortality are heavily linked. So I, I have no issue if, if you don't want to be the best quote unquote best power lifter that you possibly could be and you're like no i just like to hang around the mid 80 kilos and keep plugging away strong i know if i went up to 93 to 105 my strength would go through the roof whatever but i don't want it that that's perfectly fine and you get those people that hang around for a long time um a buddy of mine alan flanagan was fucking chronic for it he that man is six foot two maybe i don't know alan's a tall dude but he said in the 83s for way way too long like that man is not built to be an 83 kilo lifter like and he was by far the most vascular man <laughs> that stood on the platform right, the ips yeah. i've ever come across but he habitually and I, I he spoke about this we won't mind me saying it he habitually at that stage walked around at 87 kilos shredded so the likes of him to cut four kilos into meat that would have that had huge he used to suffer with his weight cuts to get into the 83s but that was just kind of, now. Thankfully, he's copped himself on and has accepted he's now gone as a ninety-three lifter. <clears throat> but um, prior to that, he used to kill himself for weight cuts. But that that was his own choice. He just preferred hanging around that that area. And more power to anyone who wants to do that. I think I think that's probably his lack of nutrition knowledge. Though to be fair, like probably you see, no, Alan's no. pure clinical. You know, when it comes to sports <laughs> nutrition, he'll say it himself. He has no interest in sports nutrition. So <laughs> he's. His intellect is inferior when it comes to anything applied sports nutrition. But, uh, <laughs> that man's going to hunt me down now and tear apart systematically any article or <laughs> a content I have ever produced now. <laughs> Rest in peace, Dave. So yeah. we've done all the, all the theory, right? We get it, right? Weight cutting is something that people do. It's something that some people should do. Some people should maybe wait, wait to do. But if you're at the point where you're like, right, third meet, I'm about to win city gym stand above david nolan crush him and be remembered forever in the limerick leader i'm gonna have an article about myself right i want to set up my weight i want to set up my weight cut now what we mentioned some of them already in terms of like like just skimming over the practices but what does that like let's say we're at that week okay where we have three percent to lose what does that typically look like like what are some of the practices um just as a, a kind of a general overview you know yeah, so generally I, I view this through a kind of hierarchical and layering um, lens. So I suppose the first thing you need to do is you can reverse engineer this whole process in terms of as an athlete, you know what you have to weigh in on competition day. If you've uh, decided upon what percentage of body mass you're willing to cut in that final week, then you can reverse engineer that. So if we know, okay, 
they're an experienced athlete, they can probably get away with cutting 3% body weight and be okay. If it's your first time, let's maybe leave it at 2%. If you're a combat athlete, it could be 5 8%, whatever it may be. Whatever that percentage is, say it's 3%, you can say, okay, I need to weigh in at this weight on competition day. So seven days out, I want my body weight to be 3% higher than that. That's the cutoff. I need it to be only 3% higher and not anymore. So from however far out you are from the competition, say five, six, seven weeks, you can say, this is my body weight now. This is what I need to be seven days out. And that's what I need to weigh on competition day. So your first thing is, am I happy with my body composition? Most people probably aren't. Tidy up your body composition to be at your target body weight seven days out. So you're at your, what you need to be seven days out with a body composition you're reasonably happy with. Now we're seven days out. We know we have 3% to lose over the next seven days or whatever it may be. We want to start off with methods that allow us to get the most weight reduction with the least risk of performance decrement. So for me personally, what I tend to do first is look at water loading and low residue type of stuff. They're the two pillars that you can get quite significant weight loss, but don't seem to have a detriment on um, performance. So if we start with water loading, so this is a novel method of body water manipulation. I said one of our pillars is body water manipulation. So the research in this area has come from Reed Reels lab out of Australia predominantly. So what this involves is consuming high levels of fluid intake water for a period of generally three to four days. The average is probably three days. So you would take in super physiological levels of water intake for three days. So generally what people recommend is 100 mils per kg of body weight or one liter for every kg of body weight. So take me as a 95 kilo um, man, I'm probably taking nine and a half to 10 liters of water in a day for three successive days in a row. So what we see there is um, we take in all this level of water. We see a downregulation of certain hormones and we see increased urination. So we start going to the toilet much, much more, which it makes sense. We drink a ton of water, we need to pee more. So that's what we do for three days in a row. Then generally in uh, about one day out, we reduce that uh, fluid intake significantly. So we'll go down to generally what I recommend, 15 mils per kg of body weight. So um, for most people, it's going to be around probably a liter to a liter and a half or less in that final day and then cutting off fluid intake about 16 hours out. So about 16 hours out, we're going to just sips of minimal amount of fluid intake. So what we see is those hormones that we had downregulated, they take a little bit of time to catch up and the re-upregulation. So essentially what we want to happen is we downregulate those hormones, we start going to the toilet, our urination frequency increases a lot. We then cut the water restriction. Hormones don't catch up very quickly that urination output stays high, but or then we have a net difference between fluid intake and fluid output. And then we want to see an acute drop in body weight there between body water changing. That seems to work uh, kind of symbiotically with low residue diets then as well. So a low residue diet is for a period of maybe two to three days, we switch. Generally what we're doing with all the foods you regard as healthy that we can um, constitute a good nutritious diet, we want to cut them out. Vegetables, fibrous stuff, thing, um, foods that generally, if you're on a diet that you're going to, you know, these low volume, high or high volume, low calorie foods, 
we want to cut those out because they have a lot of fiber. They build up a lot of roughage and stuff in the GI tract. We want to switch to foods that are low volume, low fiber, low weight for very high calories. So what that looks like practically in your final few days is you're probably going to be taking in a lot more fats in terms of oils. You're going to be taking in peanut butters. A lot of things that can still get a lot of energy into the body so we can keep energy high while um, reducing actual food weight. So between the water loading and low residue, they seem to work hand in hand with each other. You can get 2 to 3% body weight reduction just from that alone. So generally, they're my first two ports of call. If I can get away with just two of those, great. That means I don't have to hit my carbohydrates. I can keep glycogen levels high, whatever it may be. So if I can get away with the two of those pillars or two of those methods, I will. If not, that's where we, okay, we need to push it more. That's where I'll come in with carbohydrate restriction is the next. So just simply reducing carbohydrate intake. Now we don't have to go crazy with it. Again, how much we push these and what magnitude we push these methods to depends on how much we need. It's context specific, how much weight loss we actually need to elicit. If it's a lot we need to do it, if it was a fighter, you know, we might reduce that down to 50 grams or less per day for up to a week. If it's, you know, if it's not, if it's for strength sport or losing two to three, we might do a mild, you know, cut off 100 grams a day or whatever it may be. We might get a little um, reduction in muscle glycogen over there because although powerlifting is not a hugely glycolytic sport, there is, you know, again, going back to this idea when we have low glycogen levels, we do see increased rate of perceived exertion for given tasks and people just don't feel as well. And if anyone buys into kind of the biopsychosocial model and how that pertains to performance, how an athlete feels going into something can have huge implications for performance. But that's essentially what we, our next port call, we hit carbohydrate restriction. And then we reduce glycogen levels um, and we reduce both glycogen in the muscle and the liver then if we're really restricting it for prolonged periods of time. So between those three methods, now you're getting into quite drastic weight loss at this stage. You know, you're pushing that 5 6% body mass reduction, I'd say on average. If that's not enough, then we hit the dehydration methods. That's when we get into active and passive dehydration. And that's more what people think that the stereotype of sweating it out in a sauna, that's where you're going into a sauna, a steam room, you're in the hot baths, you're doing towel wraps, and you're doing salt baths. That's your, um, they're more your passive strategies. Your active strategies then is your cardio, low intensity cardio. And you see boys doing treadmill stuff. Uh, and these, oftentimes you'll see the active and passive combined. So you'll see guys in sauna suits on treadmills. You'll see guys bringing, uh, spinning bikes into saunas and this is and this is really when you're getting into the dangerous end of stuff that you start mm. getting to the potential for renal failure where you're pushing dehydration to really really dangerous levels you know the risk of heat stroke is going up you've all these factors that can come in so as a coach that's where you need to have strict cutoffs in place as a coach you should be saying okay before and agree with your athlete if this happens if this biomarker gets to this level we scrap the weight cut and we pull from the fight or whatever it may be. Those, those um, pre-agreed um, cut-offs are very important to have your athletes because if not, you're at a stage where you're, you're fearful for your athletes, but because you haven't agreed anything beforehand, they're like, no, I'm able for this. I can, I can go. Where if you've, no, we agree. If we got to this point, we cut it. And as a, 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 an ethical practitioner, you should do that. You should be able to pull your athlete and athlete safety must be paramount. So that's, that's essentially where you get to. So I like to layer those things. So your first layer is your water loading and um, low residue. So very effective, low risk of performance. 
On top of that, let's layer in carbohydrate restrictions. Like, can be effective, bit more risk for performance there. If we need to go higher again, that's where we're putting in our, um, our active and passive dehydration. Very effective, a lot of risk for performance there, depending on your recovery strategy. Um, so they're the main pillars I would personally use. I don't ever really use anything else outside of that. Um, there's some caveat and nuances around heat acclimation and preparing people for certain phases of that that we could go into their rabbit holes. But other common things that you would see people engage in then that I don't really use that much, that um, they're probably common methods, but not the best methods, if you get me, would be um, laxatives. You see people use laxatives, and again, uh, again, just to clear out the GI tract. Now, again, <coughs> I could talk about there is a time and place for that, um, if used appropriately. Um, induced vomiting, so bulimic-type behaviors, uh, we'll see people use. Again, I won't go into the risks of that because the vomiting you obviously turn away lining of your esophagus and all these type of things and obviously as a behavioral thing it's not a good habit to probably try and encourage um extended fasting then is the other thing just people not eating for a full day or that before weighing is is another thing um fetching is another thing that it's predominantly seen only in uh jockey sports at birth south but just spitting and you'll even have some racetracks still have a corned off fetching area where you just spit out saliva so you'll see guys put in sour sweets or what it may be to just induce um, salivation and then to spit out to lose the last 50, 100 grams, whatever it may be, is common practice. But again, there, there are methods that I don't think are needed. And if you have a solid plan in place, um, you shouldn't need to go to those. Like in general, we say if you miss weight, you came into um, competition week too fat. It's as simple as that. You came in. You shouldn't miss weight if you're if you're applying everything appropriately. Absolutely, and and I suppose like the the one final like distinction there, I guess between the um, between sports and between even within sports is how long your weigh in actually is. Like if you have a two hour if you have a two hour weigh in versus say a twenty four hour weigh in versus in 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 jiu jitsu in the IBJJF anyway, as far as I know anyway. Um, basically you weigh in and you compete right away you know i did a jiu-jitsu competition in in september and it was a case of you're walking into the pen to do your fight you weigh in as you're there and like the guy i was supposed to be uh going competing against first he basically went up in scales and was too heavy and it was like oh no sorry and we were like literally just about to walk out like that was it and it was just like no sorry you can't compete mate go home you've paid for it and showed up but that's it so like there's there, like obviously in that case you have no opportunity to even rehydrate you might be able to wet your mouth but that's it so so obviously there's got to be some distinctions in, in in practices there as well well that's it and it's 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 this concept of a spectrum so um I, I remember chatting to danny about this he was talking about this concept of all of these methods we tend to categorize them as low risk or high risk very arbitrary but it's context specific where the, the fall upon a spectrum of low risk to high risk, but same methods can fall in a different place along that spectrum, depending on the given context. For example, if you are jujitsu and you have to weigh in dehydration, that is a very high risk. Um, so mild, mild acute dehydration, that's very high risk for a judo or for a jujitsu <coughs> athlete. Where if you have a, a boxer with a 36 hour weigh in acute dehydration, probably a low risk um method for that individual because he is 36 he or she is 36 hours to rehydrate so it's like that the, 
the method you use and the relative risk of that method fluctuates, is fluid, and is very context-specific upon the sport itself, the nature, the energy demands of that sport, the strategy of your given strategy. So what type of fighter you are or what type of athlete strategy you implement can augment how you um, approach the weight cutting process. And then the biggest probably one is that recovery period. How long do you have to regain weight and recover and refuel afterwards? Like um, the strategies you're going to use to recover won't change that much. It's just the magnitude um, and that, that you did. So uh, after you hit the weigh-in, a lot of people hit weight okay. Regain is, or the recovery is probably where a lot of people mess up. Um, we see a lot of people with short weigh-in windows. I've seen guys at meets take out fucking potatoes and turkeys and lunchbox and start eating i'm like that food isn't even half digested in your stomach it hasn't even it hasn't even got into the small intestine by the time um you step on the platform so like your main pillars when you get off the weighing scales you want to rehydrate um as much as you can now people you see people choke two three liters of water you're just going to feel bloated and sick and end up peeing so there's a, there's a maximum amount of absorption we can have so generally we see people can take in about a liter per hour um, is obviously you're going to have huge inter-individual differences depending on your size and state, whatever that be. But somewhere in the region of 1 to 1.5 litres an hour is probably a good area to shoot for. I'd rather shoot a little over and push it to 1.5 than shoot a little under in this situation. So when you step off the platform, generally I want to be getting fluids back in. I want those fluids to ideally contain some sort of electrolytes. So put in the likes of Diorolite, something like that, just to help with the rehydration process. Add those in. Generally, with those fluids, I'll put in some carbohydrate then as well. Now, the osmolarity of a fluid will uh, influence your gastric gastric emptying rate. So maybe we don't want to hit too many carbohydrates straight away or too many fats or whatever may slow gastric emptying. So generally, for the first half an hour, you know, you're hitting a lot of fluids, a lot of electrolytes. Then I like to start introducing um, carbohydrates in this sense of fluid as well. So taking in some Luxate Sport. I personally like to mix a glucose and fructose solution because you potentially have um, an increased rate to, of muscle glycogen resynthesis as they use different transporters to get across the um, interstitial membrane or whatever it may be. The caveat on that, I often hear people talk about that with absolute certainty. It's like, oh, you know, if you're only taking in glucose, you get 60 grams per hour, where glucose and fructose, you can push that as high as 90. That research is based upon cyclists mm -hmm. engaging in cycling. That's in an exercising muscle. So yes, it seems to be we can hit those rates in a continually exercising muscle when feeding intra-exercise, essentially. Whether that holds true in a non-exercising state, uh, there, probably, there probably is literature there that I just haven't um, looked at yet. But whether or not we can do the same rates in a, a non-exercising state, I, I'm not too sure of. But that's essentially, I'll hit the carbohydrates and at that. Once you've hit a decent whack of those within the first hour, hour and a half, I generally leave it up to athlete preference then. Like we've hit your pillars of, and this is for a two hour away in, um, we've hit your hydration, we've hit your carbohydrate. Then generally, if someone wants to fill up on jellies, I'm, obviously I'm biased towards caffeine. I'm going to have super physiological levels, caffeine being hit in that period then as well. Um, outside of that, like I personally think caffeine recommendations in literature are way too conservative, mm. but we can go into that again but that's where i'd hit after that you know you're an hour out from meat whatever we've rehydrated them as best you can we 
have the initial carbohydrates go in. Then you're just telling them to keep sipping water, keep taking in fluids, eat to preference. If they want to eat jelly, if they want to eat um, whatever it may be. Because at that stage, I don't mind them having a full stomach because, as I said, some of that proprioceptive stuff, if that allows them to brace better into their belt and they feel more secure and strong, by all means, go to it. And that's down to individual preference. Some people like to feel kind of bloated when they step on the platform. Some people like to feel, uh, have the stomach empty. Whatever the athlete feels they're going to do better with at that stage is, is fine. In terms of your combat sport, where you're uh, panning it out over 24, 36 hours, it's the exact same thing, just prolonged. Because the magnitude of weight loss was, more, was going to be more significant. Therefore, you just have to continue the process for longer you're still trying to get them to average a litre intake per hour. You want them to fill up as much carbohydrate and eat as they can and just keep grazing and getting fluids in. But at that stage, a lot of people, a lot of nutritionists I know will get hung up on clean foods and make sure. I really don't care at that stage what they take in. Sugar is sugar. Glycogen is going to be glycogen. Just take it in. Um, a colleague of mine, the research group, John Connor, works with UFC fighters. He works at the highest level. And I know one of his fighters will take a two-liter bottle of Coke. That's one of that's pretty much what they're doing. And now what I like to do, I, I've worked with guys that like that. What I tend to do is get them to shake the bottle and make it flat because just from the gas coming in. But if not, if you flatten that, that's two liters of sugar water, essentially. That's a lot of carbohydrate you can get in. Highly palatable. The athletes, you know, they're going to be dealing with nerves. They mightn't, they're after cutting weight, they mightn't feel the best. If that allows them to, you know, to get in the carbohydrates need in a very sustainable and easy manner without putting more additional stress on the athlete, by all means, I don't care that it's not quote unquote clean foods. Like, yeah, like realistically, you know, the, the, sorry, broccoli is not going to be acutely performance enhancing. You know, <laughs> get, get the coke into you. Uh, Dorian Yates actually used to have for his post workout meal. He used to have Coca Cola and Mars bar there you go so that's the secret man you know <laughs> but lots of athletes do that stuff and i think people people don't realize it you know that like people in the that if you went down to your local gym you find people that are absolutely obsessive about every last detail of nutrition whereas you meet high level athletes then or you go for food with them or watch what they eat and it's like <laughs> jesus <laughs> really <laughs> this is what you do <laughs> yeah like i find that strange like obviously I, i'm strange enough where I, I i run in a lot of different circles like even even in the, obviously, uh, the academic and then the fitness industry type of stuff don't always see, I, I kind of stra straddle the two, but even within the evidence-based sphere, mm. there, like, there's the physique and bodybuilding side of stuff, and then there's the S&C sports performance side of stuff, and for some reason, they don't tend to have a lot of crosstalk, no. but I, I straddle the two of them. So within that then as well, we have um, people who are into the clinical nutrition side of stuff that I, I'd often talk, but I find it strange, like I'll sit at dinner, and just see, as you said, the high-level athletes, you know, even the high-level coaches, just usually monsters to eat. They will just, they will devour a pizza, a rack of raves, so yeah. they love it. Like, now, it's not to say they eat that way all the time. You know, they're still getting a lot of vegetables. They're still nailing their nutrition. But then you go to, like, an a academic conference with, like, registered, registered dietitians. I, I respect the field, but my God most of them have eating disorders or disordered eating themselves. It, it's absolutely eating. And I'm sitting there this kind of, and oftentimes at these academic conferences, I might be the only one that lifts in the room. So I'm sitting there, <laughs> oh, it's like going, and I find myself like, Jesus, my portion sizes are a, a lot larger than everyone else here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's usually, oh, there's that bearded powerlifting dude that thinks he's an academic. He's like trying to blend into our group. I was like, it's, it's just, it's strange. Like, uh, 
nutrition for me, it's, it's so at its core, it's so simple and fundamental that people overcomplicate, but it's how people can get so emotionally involved and invested in such an area. fascinates me where I'm like, fucking food, man, chill the fuck out. It's like, like people, like, you, people are mortal enemies because of differing views on nutrition, yeah. on nutritional, and it's on their interpretation of nutrition research. And you'll have people that are actually hate each other because of this, which to me just fucking blows my mind. It's, it's crazy. And again, I say it jokingly sometimes, but people baffle me with their EDC. Like, <laughs> even, like, and I, it's hard to say that from, not to sound like an arrogant arsehole where yeah. I'm not putting myself on this like higher level of intellect. I'm fully aware that I'm an irrational chimp like everyone else at the end of the day, but my God, and the pandemic at, this, at the moment has really shown that where it both situations like this brings out the best in people, but my fuck, it brings out idiocy in people. Um, <laughs> and I can't remember who, who I saw say it. It could have been Kieran Regan in the last week around like when you think of everything in life pretty much fits a bell curve, a normal distribution. Intelligence is no different. So you think of the average person, they're pretty fucking stupid. Um, and now think half people are less intelligent than that person. Where One of my favorite quotes of all time actually comes from the Men in Black film, um, where there's a scene where, um, oh, what's your man of, oh, the actor, you've, Will, oh, Jesus, you've, um, don't ask me anyway. I'm the fucking worst. Tommy Lee Jones. You have Tommy Lee Jones and <laughs> what the guy you have, fresh pair, fresh. Will Smith. Will Smith, yeah. You have Will Smith. So he's just been exposed to the aliens and he's saying to Tommy Lee Jones, like, look, why don't we tell people? Like, people are intelligent. People could deal with this. And Tommy Lee Jones says, no, a person is intelligent. People are chaotic and irrational. And that are, yeah, they're chaotic, panicky, and irrational. And that's true. Any individual person can be rational. You put people in a big group and you have group delusion and mass delusion and hysteria and people as a whole are just fucking idiots. You know what I mean? Uh, as yeah. Tim Minchin says, we're all just monkeys in shoes. That's essentially what we are. I'm not even wearing shoes, man. That'll show you how bad I am. <laughs> that's it. You're woke. You're at a different <laughs> level. And <laughs> no shoes. So I think, that, I think that does cover most of what we wanted to talk about as it relates to weight cutting for strength sports in particular. So out of respect for your valuable time saving the world and all that, I've got a few questions to finish off just because we don't have guests on that often. We want to have more guests and I want to do that thing where you just ask people random questions at the end. <laughs> so, rather than just having like, one question like Danny Lennon has, you know, where he asks everyone one thing. Do you have a question? You used to do that, I think, with guests. I'm not. Do you yeah, I, I did it. And Hugh Gilmore recently was the first time I didn't do it because I'd asked Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I just to be honest, that man scares me when I ask. When <laughs> you give that man a leading open question, you don't know how he'll turn that kind of stuff on you. So <laughs> I didn't ask with him. But I generally ask people, um, and it doesn't have to be related to the conversation we had had, um, what would you say is the biggest mistake or learning experience you had that has shaped the way oh, yeah. you approach either your career or life as a whole at the moment. Um, so that tends to stump people. So generally the questions tend to be more and advice for anyone starting a podcast, either warn the guests beforehand, which I generally don't do because I, I can gauge what guests will do well with it or just tell them there'll be a question at the end because I've heard so many podcasts where they've thrown this question and it's like a minute of awkward silence. Yeah, and the answer is just shit. The host did not edit out. It's like, 
if you do it and there's a minute of awkward silence, edit it out to make it sound like they answered straight away or only have five seconds of awkward silence. It's just that minute of like static. that It's very awkward for the listener. Yeah, well, Dave, I don't think you're going to give me awkward responses anyway. But these are just quick fire little ones, kind of. So first one is hobby or interest unrelated to fitness or your profession. What's that for you? Ooh, ooh. Um, I was going to say hiking and or a bit of mountain biking, but that that that's not that's um, fitness. No, nah, that's uh, fitness. something weirder. Something fucking weird. That you, just something you're peripherally interested in, even. Peripherally interested in. Um, I won't go down some of the physiological stuff and why people do bad shit to other people. Um, <laughs> I like I have a morbid sense of curiosity of what like fuels people to do harm upon other people and that kind of stuff and like you know that. all that kind of torture stuff and serial killers and all that. Um, I suppose what I, what I always did and I, geez, I haven't taken haven't done it in a long time is uh, when I was younger I always aspired to be a herpetologist. So that's someone who is an expert in the study of reptiles. Um, that's maybe it's because of my own reptilian um, tendencies, I suppose. But I, I have quite a collection of um, what would you say, cadaver animals. Like I have an extensive collection of uh, dead and framed snakes, tarantulas, um, bats, insects, beetles. Um, I, like just on my mantelpiece, in there I have a baby alligator head um, that someone brought back for <laughs> me from somewhere. So, yeah, I used to collect uh, animals a lot. That used to be my thing. Now that I'm saying I'm interested in serial killers and have a thing for yeah, dead animals. Yeah, getting it's, weird, it's, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not really painting me in the best light. But, uh, yeah, I suppose they would be um, my weirder hobbies if I was to put anything down. It's something I haven't done in a long time, but I do still have quite a collection there. That's legit. I like that. The next one's a bit harder because it could make you out to be like some sort of totalitarian dictator if you give the wrong <laughs> answer. But basically... Immanuel Kant had the categorical imperative, which was act only according to that maxim, whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So Dave, you have to create Nolan's law, some sort of behavior that you think everyone should be legally abided to engage in. What is it? Everyone (laughs) above six foot is cold. Um. (laughs) Paddy Farrell, get out. (laughs) Um, like it, it, that's an interesting one because I, I've often joked about um, I don't like to use the term ethnic cleansing because that's not what it's called um, but yeah, like good, a wide scale IQ test and anyone that falls below that threshold is just oh, you know what I mean <laughs> but the problem is I've joked about that in the past I could very much see where like um, uh, Paul Paul Rowan has uh, a nickname for me he calls me uh, Wiley as in Wiley Coyote, because I generally have all these plans and I think of a master manipulator and then it just backfires on me. So what would happen is I would lobby hard to get this IQ test put in place and then I'd fail it. I'd fall below the threshold or something and end up having to be culled with the rest of uh, humanity. But I suppose that's, that's, a, that's a really good one. Um, like, don't be a dick is just a general good rule. It's like, there's no reason. <laughs> Like most people to be a dick, but I suppose... But you couldn't legally impose it, though. No. Who decides what being a dick is, you know? Irish people are generally dicks, like, and I think it's one of the best things about us, so, like... Yeah, well, that's true. I, like... (laughs) A lot of people think, oh, you know, it just has a sarcastic sense of humor. It's like, no, I'm just a dick, and you're not... Yeah, no, I'm serious. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm just a dick, and your own ego is trying to 
cushion yourself that I'm only having a laugh. But um, so if I was to make something, you're not allowed to express an opinion on something you don't have sufficient education on. Oof, but who decides what the what level of education is required? It's, it's like you know what I mean. There's there's no rule that you can. Uh, imposed but if there was yeah. some way this is why of, it's a good it's a good question um, but yeah you you restrict certain domains that you're not allowed you're not allowed to express an opinion on something to do with other people's m- medical health unless you have a suitable qualification unless you're suitably qualified now you say oh well there's doctors well then we need to have more stringent qualification standards and we need to have better professional standards that if a doctor like there, there's an expression fail is md or pass is md you know what i mean in any medical class you'll have people are top of the class you'll have people barely scrape through every exam mm-hmm. that still become a medical doctor or qualified at the far end so any trade or profession if people are really good if people are really bad if you've really bad medical doctors that are given poor advice and opinions well then the professional standards authority needs to be raised and we need to get those people out of the profession it's harsh but if it's how we push professions forward we need to do it like I've argued a lot around the, the business of universities that you have to have a certain number of passes and people getting degrees keep the business and the wheel going. I think too many people pass degrees. I think college exams are too easy to pass right across the board. Sports science is, is my area. We have too many shitty sports science graduates come out that should have been cold in year one. And the thing is, you set the bar higher. We've seen it throughout everything in history. You set a bar higher Oh, guess what? Initially, yeah, it's tough. People mightn't hit it. But then a few people start hitting it, and then there's a snowball effect. The four-minute mile was impossible until Roger Bannister crushed it. Mm -hmm. Then he did it. People start trickling in behind it. So I think we need to be constantly raising a standard and then aspiring to that standard. But, yeah, if there was one law was put across people, I don't know. Again, that would be it. Again, it's it's what I'd like to see. The mechanisms of how that applies, I, I don't know. What, what, what's your one? What would your rule be? Well, so far, I know that you've, we're starting a communist dictatorship um, <laughs> in which you get, we kill all the reptiles. Um, they're stored in your house in the Kremlin. And you get killed if your IQ is below a certain level. Um, and basically, all doctors need to get over 90% to pass. That yeah. sounds like a but fantastic it's not communism, because I don't like <laughs> communism. Isn't no, this no, idea, no, I'm only joking. This idea of um, equal distribution of wealth, fuck that. That's bullshit. So you have someone that works their ass off and they're not allowed to make more. Like, I like capitalism. You know, if you work hard and you're able to be intelligent enough to see patterns and supply a business that makes money, so what? More, more power to you. It's like you deserve to reap the rewards, whatever that may be, be it fiscal awards through money or whatever else. You know, I, I don't believe that um, there should be equal distribution of wealth across um, all society equal opportunity of equal e- equality and opportunity, but not e- equality and no. outcome. No. I'm with you, brother. Sounds legit. Next one bit softer to, so that we don't have to set up a dictatorship. <laughs> Favorite book that you'd recommend to people. Again, doesn't have to be scientific. Do you don't even have to agree with it? It could just be a general recommendation. Um, Other than the Bible, of course, you know, Easter weekend, man, you know, I, I'm a, <laughs> yeah, we won't go into that. Like I'm no, as atheist to no. come, but the, the Bible is a, is a fun read. Like, like, the Old Testament, there's some dark shit in that Old Testament. When you dig into it, oh, it's, it's a good read. But um, probably the book that jumps to mind, and I often recommend it, um, and luckily enough, I by chance was given it in, can't remember, towards leaving cert time or start of first year, 
Ben Goldacre's Bad Science. Hmm. That is, it's a book. Um, he's a scientific journalist. But he talks about, as the book suggests, bad science. So just like times where science have been misinterpreted, research studies set up ra- wrong, what's poor methodology. But it's not wrote in... It's very wrote for the layman. It's wrote in very accessible terms. There's a good comedic value to it. It's a very entertaining read. So it's something that someone who is no academic training can read that book and really have a good grasp of the world as a whole. So it, it goes with some of the arguments against anti-vaxxers. It, it yeah. goes in these and shows why these are fundamentally flawed. So I think if most people read that book, which in itself is an entertaining read, we would have a much better society and people would understand epidemiology better understand wide-scale research and just the scientific method as a whole um yeah that's probably in terms of books that's what i would in terms of i don't read fiction as such i'm not, I'm not a great fiction guy um yeah and other than that reading is something i i do a bit of reading but something i really need to up my game on um but I think everyone, no matter how much you read, everyone yeah, says I would, need to up my reading. The more you read, the more you want to read. Like, but but yeah, no, yeah. bad science is a is a, is a solid, a solid recommendation. I think it is a good kind of introduction to people, mm. um, to kind of like general like uh, what what does the process of science actually look like without being like a, a high up philosophy of science thing. It's more so like cr- cr- critiquing all of the things that you will have been familiar with. And the good thing about it as well is that it attacks names that you will have been familiar with. And, and I, I really like that when people are just courageous enough to be like, yeah, I'm going to fucking tear down your business. Cause I'm like, yeah, that's fucking legit respect. We should have that in our culture. Like Patrick Holford is one of the guys who has a lot of like nutritional therapy books and people will see them on shelves all of reasons everywhere. And he spends a lot of time talking about his business and that and lots of other things. So yeah, that's a good thing again. And another thing then uh, on that note of bad science is that um, Dr. Steven Sen He's a statistician. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote a paper himself then on uh, basically a, a meta level bad science in Ben Goldacre's bad science. So if you want to read the book and then read a critique of the book and mm-hmm. Ben Goldacre, then Stephen Sen is good to look at too. Um, if, you want to, if you want to step up a level then again, um, I don't know, you've probably read it, Gary. I don't know if you read the um, Structure of Scientific Revolutions by I Thomas Kuhn. It's on my list, yeah. Thomas Kuhn. That... That 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 was a great book, but my God, um, that's heavy going. It's not something yeah. you can just, you know, one of these books you just can't pass to read. You, you need to read a page and then like, it's I have no idea what I just ra- read. I need to go back and read that again. But um, that that's a that's a very solid book. Um, but again, don't go into that lightly. You'd want, that's something you need academic training and you need to understand the scientific method to even just to understand him talking about the scientific method. And then there is the other good one that uh, Kieran O'Regan put me onto um, the audio book. Oh, you would have read it and listened to it again. They talk about a lot of paranormal um, beliefs in it. Um, oh, uh, Carol, Carol Sagan. Carol Sagan. The Demon and the Haunted World or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that was, that was interesting. I like that. That's good. It is very yeah. good. Okay, hit me with the next question. What are My favorite with? alcoholic beverage. Ooh, ooh. Oh, that's tough. Um... It, it's mood specific i i do quite enjoy my alcohol um i do like a good shatter enough to pap if you're going with your red wine so that that is a, a good red wine choice um if i'm going with beer i do like a, a good pint of guinness from somewhere a good pint of guinness will do actually pff, might be blasphemy but a good point of murphy is probably oh my <laughs> <laughs> uh, um there's that if you're going into your beers i do like a um 
I like a good a fruity IPA or a Belgian white. That those kind of will go along a long way for me. Um, if you're just having one, uh, a sour, a nice sour beer can be good. Um, you get into your kind of your Elvis juice, your Brewdog kind of stuff there. When you go to your hard alcohols, I'm more of a whiskey. I fall more on kind of the bullet bourbon kind of stuff. And with that, the cocktail has to be an old fashioned. Uh, oh, yeah. An old fashioned is is my go to. So I suppose a really good glass of red wine or an old fashioned would be my my go to's. Nice. Actually, very similar to myself, to be honest. I think you're probably like me where you like tastes that are generally just stronger in general. You probably drink a coffee black, you know, you're not weak. You don't. Put yeah. 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 Double espresso kind of guy. Yeah. Legit. Yeah. They all kind of go along together. And then finally, this is actually a tough one because I actually think about this all the time, but no more physical training ever or no more academic pursuits ever. No more physical training. Oh, without really? a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. That's what I always what think. No more, what does no more academic pursuits mean? Like you can never learn anything again. Never, never actively pursue learning just for the sake of learning. So, like, I mean, you're able to, you're able to go and work a job, and if you need to learn skills on the job, that's fine. But um, no more of this. Like, I'm going to go and learn about the adaptations to training because I want to know more about training or something you're interested in. Like, obviously, it's it's, it's a bit of a, a thought yeah. experiment. Oh yeah, and. <laughs> They had no physical training. So is that complete sedentary life? Ah, you can walk. <laughs> a walk. Uh, See, I always come to the conclusion quickly like you. I'm like, oh, no, I spend way more time like reading and interesting and yeah. interested in stuff. So surely I could give up training. But then you think about it and you're like, oh, do I want to be like skinny fat for the rest yeah, of Yeah, that's the life? thing. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, I wouldn't even be skinny fat. I'd just be fat. Like, that'd be my <laughs> thing. I'd just be short and fat. Um <laughs> I probably would give if I'm allowed walk and I can still control my nutrition. So at least I can be skinny. God, imagine being skinny. Oh. <laughs> Seventy-two but, kilo, Dave. Oh God, with just They're, a little, just a little belly though, like no, no oh, more little belly fat, and tummy. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> probably, I still work a job and train away. Oh, that is a tough one when you actually you think about it. Yeah, you play it through and you're like, Jesus. Yeah, because you can lean into it. If you're going with a job you relatively like, you can just lean into it. And it depends upon the career path you're allowed to go with because that will dictate how much mental stimulation you can get. Um, and the other, thing, the other thing that's bad about it in your case is that you'd be the academic, intellectual yet idiot who advises powerlifters while being skinny fat. And oh, not, yeah. You couldn't do it. Like, you couldn't do it. <laughs> no, there's very few coaches pull that off very well. No, um, it's just not a good look, really. But I, I probably I probably would go with the no more physical training. Like, I don't know whether people put on a, a big sh- facade or something like this, but the gym being taken away from me, like, people are going on as if their life is over. I, know, yeah. I mean, a huge part of their identity doesn't really bother me that much you know what i mean if i or if something happens i have to take five days off training it doesn't really bother me that all much i'll get on with it you know what i mean it's not that training training's an important part and it's something i engage in but it's i wouldn't say it's, it's a key element of my life as such you know i can if something happened that forced me away from training for a while i can get on with it it doesn't yeah. bother me all that much now when i if i started to see change in body composition or no performance really started to tank then yeah it'll probably start to bother me but you know if if i for whatever reason oh i have to go traveling and i'm away for a weekend and somewhere 
like the amount of people go away for like a night somewhere and whether it's just for social gratification or approval they're like i'm gonna be here for two nights any gyms i can use it's like yeah. yeah if there's a gym there's a cool gym like i'll go to it and i'll train but if there's a city that there's so much culture stuff that i won't have time to train yeah i don't off. care <laughs> you know what i mean i i i get more from these other experiences than i i i do from the gym and a lot of time when i travel and train it's more for a social element i enjoy who i'm going to be training with yeah. or getting an opportunity to train with rather than the actual training itself so yeah, it's a tough one. I wouldn't like to have to make that decision, but I probably would go with the academic stuff if, if I had to. Yeah, I'm also not sure it'd be a great look though, like when you're skinny fat and a dictator as well, you know, in your, in your, in your communist society, or sorry, capitalist dictatorship that you've created, you know. taking Well, the- you know, it worked for Lenin pretty well. It worked for, yeah. Lenin was, well, Lenin was tall. See, that's the difference. You know, I'm more of a, <laughs> I'm more of a, yeah, I'm more of a North Korea type of guy, aren't I? It's more my kind of style. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! On that note, um, that that was good, crack. Uh, Dave, what's the what's what's the story? Where where can people find out more about about your work if they're if they're they're interested? I just listened to your podcast yesterday. Fantastic. There's some other podcasts that you've been list- that you have on your your personal podcast or the Synapse Performance Podcast where you've touched on things that came up in this conversation. One thing you mentioned in passing was the the heat acclimation and you had a fantastic episode on that actually a lot of new stuff for me with a researcher what was his name again oliver barley oliver barley, oliver um, barley so yeah. if, if people are interested they should definitely check out your podcast but other than the podcast what where where else can people find you in your work yeah so i suppose if you want to email me directly ever it's david at synapseperformance.ie and you can find all those links through the website so synapseperformance.ie um open for you know coaching consultations whatever it may be um, doing quite a bit of consultation so a lot of what I like enjoying doing if clubs or organizations like kind of an audit of their athletic development program I do a bit of that um, in terms of my social media Twitter David underscore synapse uh, Instagram I like I'm falling behind you compared to you now I'm, I need to up my Instagram game so if anyone wants to follow me on Instagram I could really do with that social gratification so it's at synapse performance there and now that uh, I'm a published author, you know my research gate. Ooh. If you want to go and look at David Nolan research gate, you can find all my one publications there. But now that I'm allowed to say that and sound like a big dick now, nice. Yeah, no. <laughs> you should get on that. Um, but yeah, Dave, thank you very much for joining us. We'll hopefully get you on in the, again in the future, talking about some other stuff, um, and and let me know how your 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 fight against COVID nineteen goes. Uh, so yeah, guys, I do appreciate you. it, sir. Yeah, in the next episode, guys, when we will have Mister Patrick Farrell back on the show.